Hello, and welcome to the course. I'm your host today, Lee, and I'm speaking with Professor Ryan Cecil Jobson from the Department of Anthropology at the University of Chicago. Jobson is an anthropologist and social critic of the Caribbean and the Americas. His research and teaching engage issues of energy and extractivism, states and sovereignty, climate and crisis, race and capital. Professor Jobson is here to talk to us about his career path and how he became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome to the course, Professor Ryan Cecil Jobson. It is great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. So, Ryan, give me just a general outline of your career. We can start in your undergrad years and then take me up to your current role at the University of Chicago. So I did my undergraduate work at the University of Pennsylvania. I began in the fall of 2007. And I knew at that moment that I was invested in sort of the study of both the African diaspora, the Caribbean. I was intense on being an Africana studies major, which led me to take a course in that first semester with a professor who became my lifetime mentor, Deborah Thomas, who happens to be an anthropologist of Jamaica and the Caribbean. So the the title of this course was Anthropology and the African Diaspora. I didn't know what anthropology was at the time. I knew there was some kind of qualitative social science, but really my my grounding and introduction to the field came through both sort of the, the work of Black anthropologists and the longstanding study, again, of Africa and its diaspora through key figures like Melville Herskovitz, who was a student of Franz Boas, as well as, again, later figures like, like Lynn Bowles, John Waltney. That's all to say that sort of my, my commitment to the field has always had a kind of unorthodox tenor, that I didn't necessarily find my way to anthropology through the typical forefathers like, you know, Bronislaw Malinowski or Franz Boas but through a lot of heterodox thinkers who aren't always included within, you know, the anthropological canon. Anyhow, I did complete a double major at Penn in anthropology and Africana studies. And then through my sort of uh, selection as a Mellon Mays undergraduate fellow, I was prepared quite rigorously, actually, to um, apply to doctoral programs in related fields during my senior year of my undergraduate studies. So, I am one of those who went straight through from my undergraduate training to my graduate training. And in some ways, I I stumbled into a program that was really ideal for my interests at the time. So I ended up enrolling in the combined PhD program in anthropology and African-American studies at Yale. It was the only such program that I applied to. I actually applied to a variety of both departments of anthropology and sort of doctoral programs in Africana studies and American studies. But this one actually allowed me to continue my intellectual course to date, to be firmly situated in both of these fields as a grounding through which I began to explore some of my research on the history and politics of the oil and gas industry in Trinidad and Tobago. And that sort of has uh, broadened out to sort of questions of energy, climate, and post-colonial governance more broadly. So at Yale, um, you know, I was, you know, lucky enough to enter that program at a moment where Jafari Allen was a junior faculty member in both the departments of anthropology and African-American studies. 
Jafari is a scholar of sort of race and queerness in the special period in Cuba and sort of a moment of socialist transition. So he really grounded me both conceptually and theoretically in schools of thought that I had not been introduced to before. We're thinking about sort of affect theory. We're thinking through particularly sort of questions of embodiment and in Caribbean communities in particular. And then I also happen to have committee members in the form of Doug Rogers, who's a scholar of oil and gas politics in the Ural Mountains region of Russia, and Interpol Graywall, who is a transnational feminist theorist who's thinking about gender, political economy. So they all really gave rise to who I am as a scholar today, along with, again, undergrad mentors like Deborah Thomas, that I think speaks to, again, my, my sort of heterodox interests and uh, diverse training in a number of different theoretical currents. So, you know, even when I'm studying something like the oil and gas industry in Trinidad, I'm always thinking about sort of what are the larger social narratives, feelings and aspects that surrounds an extractive energy complex like that? How do people form attachments to these industries? How do they live them? Even as sometimes they begin to disappear. So that's really the trajectory that took me through graduate school. I began a, a faculty appointment at the University of Chicago in 2017, first as a provost postdoctoral fellow for the first two years. And then I've been the, the Neubauer Family Assistant Professor of Anthropology ever since. And effectively, this is where I've continued to build on this scholarship in relation to, I would say, a new intellectual tradition that I was always aware of from afar, but particularly the Department of Anthropology's focus on historical anthropology, the legacy of a, a figure like um, Michel Rolf Trio, who was a, a famous Haitian anthropologist who worked in this department before he, he passed away. That's a legacy that I continue to meditate on. I've actually taught a graduate course entirely sort of based on Rolf's scholarship and life's work. And again, that continues to inform the way that I think of both myself as an anthropologist and approach the field of anthropology in my career today. So, Ryan, how would you explain what an anthropologist does, or perhaps what you do specifically as an academic and an anthropologist, to someone who just, you know, has no prior experience with that word? It's a fantastic question. And there are many different types of anthropologists, but I'll give you sort of the the version that best explains what I came to understand anthropology to be after not knowing what it was, again, um, when enrolling in the course Anthropology of African Diaspora as a freshman undergrad. Effectively, anthropologists, anthropologists study the human. You know, we're, we're students of humanity in all of its guises. Um, but most importantly, I think that we're also theorists of humanity from the ground up which is to mean that our basic research method is one that is grounded in everyday social practice. A lot of times ethnography, which is our signature method, is euphemized as deep hanging out. So any, any students who are interested in hanging out as a professional enterprise, I would invite them to, to join us and become anthropologists. Another way that I would frame this in very sort of direct terms is that you know, I did mention that I also incorporate a number of historical approaches in my own research and scholarship. But one of the ways that I think that we differentiate ourselves, at least until recently, from professional historians 
is the way that we take the widest possible approach to what counts as legitimate evidence. And I'm actually, I'm stealing this, I'm paraphrasing from a radio interview that Rolf Triot, who I mentioned earlier, did when he was a, a doctoral student in anthropology at Johns Hopkins University. So he's being interviewed in Haiti, in his homeland of Haiti, where they asked him, again, why he pursued a degree in anthropology and not in history. Um, and his answer was precisely this, that um, anthropologists are able, by virtue of our history as a discipline, to draw evidence not just from formal archives, but what has now been taken up in the, the discipline of history as oral history, as participant observation, as well as other kinds of sort of ephemeral um, myths and, and forms of evidence that may not appear quite as palpable. So, Ryan, as you pursued your PhD and as you pursued your career as an academic in anthropology, were there any challenges or barriers that you bumped up against? Certainly. And I think one of them has to do with um, this sort of heterodox relationship to the field of anthropology, which is to say that I've always approached anthropology from the perspective of scholars who were some of its greatest critics, right? There has been a long tradition, particularly of Black anthropologists who um, received training in this field, but then either did not complete their doctoral degrees, um, were excluded from faculty positions, were also just sort of written out of the canon of what we think about as anthropology. Of course, I think the, the, the clearest example of this is Zora Neale Hurston, who now, thanks to Alice Walker, is well regarded for her work as a novelist. She's widely read, uh, again, by high school students and undergraduate students. Um, but she was also trained as an anthropologist and folklorist at Columbia University under Franz Boas. But she did not complete her degree and she faced a number of challenges. So I've always been sort of at pains to reconcile these two traditions, particularly now that I'm appointed in an anthropology department. And one of the ways that I've done that is by making this sort of explicit in my scholarship, my first peer-reviewed journal article that I co-authored with my graduate mentor, Jafari Allen, was meditating on precisely this problem. And it's called the decolonizing generation. So I was thinking about a generation of scholars like Michelle Rolfe Trio, Clay Harrison, Lynn Bowles, Irma McLaurin, who are at pains to sort of bring um, these unheralded legacies of Black anthropology that were often recognized, again, in interdisciplinary fields like Black studies, but not in sort of undergraduate and graduate curricula and training in anthropology. So I think that in some ways, my effort has always been to create a space for my own scholarship and for myself in this discipline by being a rigorous student of the history of the fields, by sort of delving into the archives of early 20th century anthropology not just to sort of demonstrate the fact that Zora Neale Hurston and her ilk were excluded, but also to say sort of what were the conditions by which something called anthropology came to be that couldn't accommodate them? And perhaps how can we better do that going forward? So again, I uh, sort of pour over, you know, the, the work of someone like Zora, as well as I've spent a lot of time, again, in various kinds of institutional archives, including those of her um, sort of Columbia colleague, Melville Herskovitz, who became sort of the paradigmatic sort of scholar of African diaspora anthropology and ended up founding the African Studies 
program at Northwestern University. So again, there are different ways to read that. The fact that Melba Herskovitz was a white Jewish anthropologist who faced many barriers of his own, but ultimately was able to sort of institutionalize this work, whereas Zora and others never were afforded that, that opportunity. So I remain a student of both of them, in part because I think that in the sort of the divergent trajectories of a Herskovitz and a Hurston, we have everything to learn about what anthropology is and how we can sort of better direct it in the future. And then who did you lean on for support as you entered this journey and, and worked through this journey? That's a fantastic question. I think my, my mentors come first. Again, um, Deborah Thomas remains my mentor from sort of those first days in September 2007 until today, as well as, um, again, my, my graduate uh, dissertation chair, Jafari Allen. She had arrived at Yale a few years before me from a faculty appointment at the University of Texas at Austin. And Austin has a very storied history, both of um, an African diaspora anthropology doctoral program, as well as a long history of activist research as sort of a, a central paradigm of the way that they train their students. So in a lot of ways, Jafari, when he came to Yale, um, brought that Austin school to New Haven, and I was instructed in it. And so both I was trying to write into the field and forge a space for myself. But also, again, I had all of these folks that came before me, and particularly someone like Jafari located in that department, in order to sort of make legible the kinds of critiques and the kinds of interventions and the kinds of methods that I was employing in my research um, at that time um, in Trinidad and Tobago. So I would say that I lean on my mentors primarily. I guess I could also answer this in terms of who my, my broader influences are, which is to say that I draw a lot of inspiration from my own family narratives. You know, one of the ways that I often articulate my my research, um, which is on sort of the legacies of energy and extractive industries in the Caribbean, um, is through my grandfather, who also was named Cecil Jobson, um, who works as, I'm sorry, let me, let me go back. So, in a lot of ways, I, I draw inspiration also from my grandfather, who worked in the agricultural division of a bauxite estate, and bauxite being the raw material that's used to refine into aluminum that's found in the regions of West Jamaica, where my family hails from. So my grandfather raised cattle all of his life. His father-in-law and many generations going back were also pen keepers for cattle ranchers in West Jamaica and my family. So in a lot of ways, the way that I've come to my research questions is as a way to think about the structural and political dynamics that have led me, for instance, to become a professor instead of someone who raises cattle in West Jamaica. And that has everything to do with, again, sort of the retreat of certain kinds of agricultural economies, structural adjustment programs that have sort of impeded the ability of the economies of the, the Caribbean in particular to compete with U.S. farming. And also, I think that I've always wanted to inquire into the, the political legacies of that moment. But I've never written about that explicitly. But I always look to, for instance, Trinidad and its narrative of economic success or relative success vis-a-vis -vis its regional com compatriots 
as something to help illuminate sort of the, the kind of condition, again, of structural adjustment and abandonment that we see in a place like Jamaica. So I would say those are my primary influences and both the folks who, who looked out for me and protected me, but also the kinds of narratives that, that motivated me to continue to pursue this and get through the, uh, my graduate training. Well, on that note, you know, why, why enter academia at all? Why not do something else with these skills and, and this knowledge that you've acquired? I have found no other place that allows me to engage in the kind of organized curiosity that academia does. So again, I'm thinking of, again, the image of myself reading Malcolm X in the back of my algebra class or calculus class and desiring a space where that can be seen as legitimate, where I can turn this into something that I can sustain myself through. And academia has always been a refuge for me. I think that it's an imperfect refuge, but it's certainly the one that's allowed me to meditate on these histories most clearly, right? And I think that part of that is to reckon with the fact that there is no simple or individual solution to these larger dynamics. I do have an uncle who continues to raise cattle in Jamaica in some ways against all odds, but there wasn't a viable opportunity because of the larger sort of social and economic dynamics in contemporary Jamaica for me to return and take up this mantle or this legacy that is running my family for generations. Despite the fact that I'm a big fan of cattle, right? I think I feel in some ways most at home when I'm in um, sort of the rural parts of Jamaica and other parts of the Caribbean that I've grown acquainted with. So all of this to say that academia is my way of being able to, to think with cattle, to think with extractive industries and to think with the economies of the Caribbean in an organized manner, particularly because it's not accessible to me in that same way today. So Ryan, you've talked a lot about what interests you about the work that you do, and, and you're clearly very passionate about it. But what don't you like about being a professor? What is the, the part of the job that's not so fun? I find that difficult to answer because of how much I do like. I guess the one thing that I would say is that we have to live a certain kind of itinerant life. And I think this is, this is unavoidable, right? That we're often moving between the spaces in which we work. And by that, I mean teach and write and perform service for the university. For me, that's here in Chicago. And then the other places that we work, the places that we conduct research, the places that we forge lasting friendships and sort of informal ties to sort of an expanded network of kin and relations. And for me, that also happens in places in the Caribbean, particularly Trinidad and Tobago, where I conducted my dissertation research. And as I mentioned, um, sort of Jamaica, which is the site of familial attachment for me. So I think the most difficult thing is just is also what makes academia so productive. Right. It's the fact that we're always thinking across these spaces that we're always grappling with. What does it mean to write in exile? Um, and I'm thinking of that in the terms of a famous Barbadian or Bayesian author, George Lamings, wrote a book called The Pleasures of Exile when he was uh, located in, in London. 
And part of that is to say our exile is not permanent. It's, it's not necessarily that we're excluded from these spaces, but we also have to think um, alongside our travels between, again, these two domains of work, where our, our political and intellectual commitments are, and then the places where we sort of continue to, to train students and perform labor for the institution. And I enjoy both of them, but I think the fact that they remain separate is something that we always have to reckon with. It's probably the most difficult part of the job that we do. It also makes it, again, um, it can make it productive, but it's always something that I think that um, we can be productively frustrated about. Oh, I love that line, productively frustrated. And finally, Ryan, just what, it's clear again that there's so much about the work that you do that is just feeding your soul, but if you could narrow it down to one element of your work, what would you say is most fulfilling about this role? Again, I think the most fulfilling thing is when a piece of writing that I've produced resonates with the audiences that I intended for. Now, I, let me step back to say a little bit about how I'm thinking about this. Again, I write about the, the legacies of extractive industries and particularly the oil and gas industry in Trinidad. Um, which has an extremely long history going back to 1908, which is when the commercial oil industry began in earnest. Um, and in some ways, my work is all sort of, again, a love letter to the people of the Caribbean who have made lives to this industry, who sometimes have been injured by this industry, who sometimes feel abandoned by that industry. So you, again, you can see the parallels here to the way that I'm thinking about the cattle and agriculture industries in Jamaica. So really the, the most gratifying thing is when I'm able to write something that resonates with that experience. And I, I, I mentioned earlier sort of this, this concept of affect. Um, there's also a, another sort of adjacent concept that a British cultural studies theorist, Raymond Williams, calls structures of feeling, that we actually feel larger social structures in particular ways. So when someone says, Ryan, what you had to say allows me to articulate a feeling that is already, that has always been there, um, but I can never quite sort of pin down. I can never quite put my finger on. I think that's the most gratifying thing. Um, and I think that stems again from my own personal experience as well. So I mentioned that I grew up in a rural part of upstate New York. One of the things that we often learned in school growing up was about the legacy of the Ashokan Reservoir, which was nearby. Um, that was the primary drinking water that continues to service what is now New York City. And the way the story was told is that the original locations of many of the towns that I grew up nearby, like Olive, Olive Bridge, Boyceville, which is where my high school was located, were actually originally located under what is now the Ashokan Reservoir and were flooded out in order to create this source of, of drinking water for the city. So I was always very aware, again, of the relationships between the country and the city, the kinds of feelings that emerge out of this. And again, the legacies of large-scale industrialization and urbanization um, that were being carried out both, again, in the Caribbean, in places like Jamaica and Trinidad, as well as in um, geographies like New York. So again, I've always wanted to sort of tap into 
what kind of feeling is this, right? What kind of feeling does the sort of aftermath of entire communities being flooded out and forcibly removed? What does it conjure? What does it look like when certain kinds of um, legacy economies like raising cattle disappear? And also, what does that look like when an identity that's surrounded being a petrostate in a place like Trinidad, when that starts to disappear as well? So I certainly think that that links all of the different places that I both dwelled and lived in. And also, I think an effort to tap in to feelings that are quite familiar to me. Thank you, Professor Ryan Cecil Jobson, for your time today. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. Leave us a comment, subscribe, follow, and share this episode with your friends and family. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Stay tuned for more and thanks for listening.